On this episode of Sporty's Fast Five podcast, our guest is J.P. Schultze, a well-known YouTube pilot who had the unique opportunity to fly a Cessna 210 around the world for a documentary film. He tells us about that journey, what he thinks about the next generation of pilots, and what it was like to grow up in Africa. Fast Five starts right now. Welcome, pilots. I'm your host, John Zimmerman of Sporty's Pilot Shop, and I am joined today by J.P. Schultze, better known as the Candorist Online. I've known J.P. for a few years, and we've even had the pleasure of flying together a few times in a couple different airplanes. He's one of the most interesting pilots on YouTube, I think, but as you'll hear today, he is a lot more than just a guy with a camera. J.P., welcome to Fast Five. Thanks for having me. It's my first podcast, so uh, we'll see how this goes. Well, we've got to start with the around the world flight. Uh, for listeners who don't know, check out Beyond Borders. It's on Discovery Plus, a really fantastic film that goes into all the details of this voyage. So you flew a Cessna 210 around the world, that whole experience in the logbook. What did you learn about general aviation from that? I'd probably say that general aviation differs more in other countries than I expected um, like the moment you leave the US and sort of Canada area things change pretty drastically pretty quickly and so um, I think we take it for granted how amazing um, how amazing general aviation is in the US and yeah it's uh, it's vastly different out there what do you wish you had known before you started out on that on that trip I mean obviously you can't prepare a hundred percent for everything but are there couple things, if you could go back in time and tell yourself before takeoff, what do you wish you knew? <laughs> I always, people always ask me, why am I going to do it again? And I said, because I learned so much that I'd like to do differently the, uh, the second time around. Um, it is extraordinarily, like human factors takes a much bigger uh, role in a flight like that than it does in our general daily flying. So managing the the I'm safe uh, acronym, you know, the the sort of the general health of your your mind and your body throughout a fatiguing trip like that is uh, is extremely important. And uh, there were many times when I was, you know, that Swiss cheese model. I was frankly down to the last slice of cheese. And uh, if anything else had gone wrong, that would have probably been it. And so. A lot of that could have been prevented by just f focusing on on being, um, yeah, resting and slowing down. Frankly, um, the pace of that trip was extremely difficult. And then, um, yeah, just having a really good team as well. I think a, a trip of that extent, you really need to have someone on the ground that knows what they're doing and able to to offer the support that you need when you need it, um, especially in flight over satellite phone, giving weather information and stuff like that. It's really important. I think it's interesting you say human factors there because you read the stories of uh, people from long ago doing these flights, whether it was you know Lindbergh or Amelia Earhart or whatever, it often does come down to the person more than the machine. I mean, the, the stories about the machine always come up, but it's really down to the person flying the airplane, isn't it? Absolutely, and and in many ways, you're playing a bit of a lottery throughout anyway with your machinery. Um, no matter how well you you take care of it and and do preventative maintenance, things can go wrong. Um, that is outside of your control, and so um, 
I think the success based on on the machinery working throughout the trip is is really just down to luck for the most part. Um, but managing everything else, um, you know, I was very young when I did it, and it taught me so much about emotional management, but also about um, just managing people and expectations and really, really stressful situations. And um, yeah, I mean, there's hundreds of little stories of uh, of when things just became incredibly overwhelming and I had nothing left but to just carry on and hope it all works out. And um, Yeah, it, it's definitely... My, my trip was definitely unique as well, though. I do have to preface that um, because of the nature of trying to film a documentary, having a non-pilot friend on board, um, and then just having well over 2 million people watch my every move. Um, that that was really, really tough, honestly. And having everyone share their two cents. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was incredibly difficult. So given that, would you recommend an around-the-world flight to an adventurous pilot? I mean, maybe not the schedule you did, maybe not the 2 million people watching live, but for an adventurous, experienced pilot, is it worth all the hassle or is it just more trouble than it's worth? I would actually genuinely recommend it to uh, anyone with the the experience and the resourcefulness of a, of a real adventurer. It's not really down to being a, a particularly experienced pilot because the, the flying part is pretty easy. It's a lot of straight and level and it's a lot of IFR. That's about it. Um, but it's, it's that being thrown unexpected curveballs, uh, especially from a cultural and political standpoint when you land in these countries and being able to handle that and extract the best out of it, that's where it comes down to. And if you're if you're competent in that part of life, I guess uh, if that's the right way to say it, then yeah, I, w- I would highly recommend it. It's, um, it's an incredible experience. Um, I, I kind of liken it to, I cycled across the US a few years ago from LA to um, New York and flying around the world in a, in a GA airplane to me felt the same way where like you're going so slow, you're so low, you're, you're, you're forced to take things in at a pace and at a sort of resolution that you never do normally. Like I've it, commercially, I've flown around the world probably 10 times in my life, 12 times. Um, but it's just not the same. And so um, it is an incredibly unique experience. So you mentioned the people tuning in watching you, and that was the second topic I wanted to ask you about, which is just YouTube in general and the growth of the aviation community on YouTube over the last five or 10 years. It's been really, uh, I think it's been a great story, really, for aviation in general. But my limited exposure with you and some other people who do a lot of that is it's hard work. So what's something that a typical YouTube viewer might be surprised to learn about what you're doing behind the scenes to make it happen? You're right in saying it's, it's hard work. It's, um, I think most people underestimate the effort that editing takes um, within itself. Um, I mean, for me, an average video can be at, at a minimum 40 hours of editing, um, but it can easily push into the 100 hours uh, of editing per video. Wow. Um, and then it, it, what really defines that, the length of editing, is the amount of cameras you're using. So 
um, the complexity of all of uh, of all the different shots and and all of that. And then um, another big thing is, you know, I'm especially with what I'm doing. I'm often the sort of lead trip planner. You know, when I do a trip to Africa or something, I'm I'm the the lead tour guide and trip planner. I'm also the flight planner. I'm also the pilot in command. I'm also the lead camera guy. And I'm also, you know, managing an airplane while taking it in, across international borders and having to maintain it and do all that. So the, the just task saturation throughout the day is at a pretty high level. Um, and I'm, I, I, count, I consider myself quite lucky because I do a lot of high intensity um, extreme sports in a way. So I think my sort of buffer for task saturation is quite high. But uh, yeah, it's definitely very consuming um, making videos for for YouTube and then I think the impact of um, this is a, a bit more nuanced but the impact of the algorithm as well and uh, everything that sort of YouTube's brought on now the, it's it wears on you quite a bit um, over time and so that is definitely another another thing that um, most people might not consider um, from a business perspective it is it's hard to have a business where you wake up every morning not knowing if it's going to perform the way that it did, it did the, the day before. Um, that's a very difficult thing to get accustomed to. You mentioned the editing and how many cameras. I mean, what, what's a typical flight for you? How many cameras are you using to shoot a video? Uh, it, it really depends on what I'm flying, how much time do I have to set up. Um, if, if it's my airplane or someone else's or uh, something like that. But I'm, I've narrowed it down to, um, at the most, three GoPros. So one on the panel, one facing um, the cabin, and then one on the wing, and then just uh, my, my big um, cinema camera that I point out the window at nice stuff. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it, <laughs> it ends up being... I'd, I'd say on the average flight, two, two GoPros, one main camera. Um, that's pretty pretty normal. And they, they all need to be synced up as well. Is there an atmosphere among, you know, aviation YouTube creators out there that, that sort of, you all trade notes or you work together? I know you've collaborated with some of the other ones out there, but what's that like? Is it friendly competition or is it collaboration or does everybody kind of keep to themselves? I'd say it's very, well... I haven't been in the scene for a f for the for the last two years because I've been uh, stuck in New Zealand. But so there's been a lot of new talent coming up and a lot of new creators. But um, I mean, my experience so far has been it's just one big happy family. Like I have each and every big creator's phone uh, number in my phone, and you know we text occasionally, and it's it's really um, um, and m many I call really good friends now as well. So. It really is a big family, and um, we do share notes, and we uh, we try and help each other out where we can. And um, it's becoming a bit more saturated now. It was definitely only a handful of people, like back in two thousand seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's still good. I I don't. My philosophy on that is, it it's not like I'm. You know, the more people join the space, uh, the less of the pie I get to have. I think it just grows the pie. I think general aviation has uh, grown thanks to uh, th these creators more than ever. And so there is a bigger 
demand now for this content. And I think that's a great thing. For me, at the end of the day, uh, preserving general aviation and sort of building it up into being something that'll survive the the era of automation and all of that um, is really important. Uh, I think it's got huge uh, social value. Couldn't agree more. And that, that leads me to my next question, which is, I know in your different roles, you talk to pilots or wannabe pilots, people who are interested in aviation, maybe people who didn't even know they were interested until they saw one of your videos. What do you tell them? I mean, what's your typical advice to someone who's interested in getting into the world of general aviation? It really depends on their situation. Um, I try and get them into it as, as much as I obviously can. It's a bit like trying to set up two people on a blind date, but then you're telling the one person ahead of time that there's a few red flags. Like, for, for, for a start, <laughs> it's really expensive. Um, and that, depending on where you are in the world, it is almost entirely cost prohibitive. So, um, that that's the... It's like, it's like setting them up saying that it's going to be the best date of your life and you're going to be hooked, but it probably will bankrupt you. <laughs> um, so that, that's, the, uh, <laughs> that's the general vibe there. And um, th that is also a point that really um, gets to me many days is how um, I really want the youth of the world to be positively occupied with um, intellectually challenging pastimes, um, but also these, 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 these hobbies that kind of get you out of your shell, get you traveling, get you going to places that you would never before, uh, teach discipline, inspire risk, ma uh, risk management, but also inspire to, to go and, and push boundaries and meet new people and all these things. I think it's so valuable, but with the expensive things, it's really hard to, um, to get people fully into it. So are you hopeful about general aviation's future or uh, what, what do you think the prospects are over the next 10 years or so? Uh, over the next 10 years, I think we're fine. Um, I, I think it'll it'll keep growing, it'll keep doing well. I mean, I know for a fact that all the kit manufacturers are um, just booming, like they're through the roof. And that's really where the future of general aviation for me lies, is in the experimental LSA world that's my roots so i might be biased but i also think that's where the accessibility lies um and we really need to um kind of leverage that we need to hone in on that world and yeah um I'm, I'm really hopeful for that i don't think that the certified world is necessarily the way forward um simply because of the costs involved so experimental is the way forward. And I think there's, we haven't even started there yet, honestly. All right, JP, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with some more questions. Cool. Ready to take ForeFlight to the next level? Sentry is a compact, affordable ADS-B receiver specifically made for aviation's top app. In addition to popular features like subscription-free weather and traffic, Sentry also includes a carbon monoxide detector to warn of dangerous conditions in the cockpit. No larger than a deck of cards, Sentry packs a long list of features into a small size, but still offers up to 12 hours of battery life. Visit sporties.com Sentry for more information. 
Now, back to Fast Five. So, JP, you mentioned your next great adventure is to fly around the world again. So tell us a little more about that. Why, uh, other than learning the lessons, what's your what's your goal with doing this again? Yeah, so I'm intending to... Uh, I've, uh, I've recently bought a Sling TSI high-wing kit. Um, so I'll be the first production kit out of the factory. It'll be a tail dragger. And so um, the, the plan is to build that airplane and then uh, fly it around the world again. Um, there's... I mean, there's... A, I mean, there's layers to my reasoning to doing it again, but um, primarily flying around the world was a childhood dream for me. And um, it, it, I mean, I dedicated years and years to, to making that trip happen. And if I'm entirely honest, I didn't enjoy it in the, in the moment. Um, the, the nature of, of how we set it up went about things and it was, it was the most fatiguing, uh, stressful um, thing I've ever done in my life, and um, it I've I felt a sense of heartbreak throughout it, but especially after, because I worked spent five years of my life working towards that, and then didn't end up enjoying it. And I just said to myself right away, like I have to go do it again, this time with all that knowledge bank and experience and knowing what to expect, and then actually go and enjoy it and have an epic time. And then the Sling TSI, um, the efficiency of that airplane just opens up so much for me. Uh, it's also Rotax powered, which um, for many reasons opens up the whole world to me. Uh, the first one is the fuel. So I flew a 210 around the world with a 550 in the front, and that uses Afgas. So my route was entirely determined by either weather and Afgas availability. So. Um, with this, with the sling, I can go anyway, thanks to that Rotax motor. So, um, it, it really is limitless. And then it's an experimental airplane. So another issue I was having on my around the world flight was maintenance. I was flying a U.S. registered, um, certified airplane around the world. So I had to find U.S. registered AMEs everywhere. That's harder to do in Pakistan and India and Sri Lanka than people might think. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, I can maintain the airplane myself, fuel is not an issue, and it's just as efficient, um, actually considerably more efficient than the 210. So um, cost, I mean, it, it reduces the, the fuel cost alone by, I think, a factor of six. It's, it's crazy. It's really wow. crazy. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very, um, very excited about this, this next trip. And are there any must-visit spots that you're definitely going to see again on this trip versus the last one? Uh, Australia, for sure. I want to go spend some quality time. Um, I'll, I'll probably end up calling it. It'll be between the U.S. and Australia eventually that I'll call home. <laughs> um, so I want to really spend some time exploring Australia as a whole and, and seeing if there's one place that really draws me in. Um, I, I do love the the expanse of that country. Obviously, Africa, I, I, I didn't get to, I grew up there, so I didn't really get to um, travel far down south into it on, on my around the world trip. So that's definitely something I want to work in. And then um, Greenland, um, just really, it, that place en encapsulated me and enchanted me more than anything. So it is, um, 
it is most definitely one that I do want to go back to. All right. So you mentioned growing up in Africa. Tell us about that. What was that experience like in general? It's always funny because like I, I'll have a conversation with someone and um, they'll ask me how it was and I'll say it's pretty normal and then we'll keep talking and, and then I'll drop a little something here and there just thinking that that is normal life and then they'll be like wait that's not that's not normal at all <laughs> um it was it was is unique uh from what i've gathered um a lot of wildlife um a lot of different cultures languages um incredible beauty so the the, the i grew up in namibia which is I'm probably biased, but in my opinion, one of the most beautiful countries in the world. And um, yeah, it had a, a surprising, thriving uh, little general aviation scene. And so that um, was, I was pretty privileged um, to be able to see that country from above as a kid as well. Um, very few people get to do that. So yeah, it's a pretty incredible place. And what's it like flying in Africa? Is it definitely should be on a, a pilot's bucket list to get there and do some flying in Africa? Oh, yeah. Um, it's actually not that hard to do either. I think people, um, the so it depends where in Africa, obviously. Um, but but in South Africa, Botswana, and Namibia, you can, you can, you can plan out a pretty sweet little trip. Um, head over to Johannesburg or Cape Town, uh, rent a plane. There's a few of these safari providers that'll like take care of your license validation for you get your plane ready um they'll even like plan you out a bit of a trip and uh, and then you jump in and you go and send it and it, it is honestly the most unique flying you'll ever do um i i often look at the guys up in alaska and and even british columbia and stuff and um and it, it is probably the the polar opposite, yet exactly the same kind of um, flying that you do in Africa, where they have big mountains and this crazy weather to deal with. Um, you know, that that is something differentiating. But for the most part, you know, you've got wildlife to deal with. You've got crazy weather. You've, you've got density altitude, which is not a thing in Alaska, really. But... Um, that, that'll that probably be the biggest adjustment for a lot of pilots is the density altitude issues. Um, vultures, birds, massive birds everywhere. Uh, you got to, every time you land, be careful for uh, for buffalo and, and lions. And uh, it's, it's really quite the experience. So I recommend it big time. Yeah, that does not sound like flying in Ohio, for example. So. <laughs> no. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. All right, JP, at the end of every one of these episodes, we like to do a series of rapid fire questions. We call it ready to copy. I'll throw out the question. You fire back with a quick answer. Are you ready to copy? Sure. Ready to copy. What is the biggest difference between flying in New Zealand and the United States? If I went over there, what would be the first thing that would hit me in the face? Uh, the lack of FBOs. Interesting. Why is that? There's no FBOs here. Um, um, the 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 availability of municipal airports in um, in the U.S. is unmatched. FBOs everywhere. Um, here you pay landing fees everywhere, and they're quite expensive, so twenty to thirty dollars per airport, um, and you don't get any facilities. So, um, courtesy cars is the coolest thing in in the under the world, like under the sun. <laughs> like it's so cool. I got, 
it's and it doesn't exist here. So um, you pay landing fees for no rail facilities um, in New Zealand. So, what's the longest flight you've made? The longest leg you've ever made? Uh, that's uh, Hawaii to California, which was uh, f- I think fourteen and a half hours. Uh, I can't remember. I have to look at my logbook, but uh, yeah, that was the that was the big one. What's the most remote place you've ever landed? Because you've been to a lot of interesting places. What's the most out of the way remote beach or desert or mountain you've ever landed at? Oh man, that's tough because you'd have to define remote, I guess. But um, I'd say I forgot the name now. It was this little place in uh, in Greenland where we stopped for fuel. Um, just so remote, it was insane. Um, and then there's uh, there's some areas in southern Namibia um, out in the in the dune belt where I. I used to go and land in um, in some salt pans and stuff. Um, yeah, definitely. You're at least a thousand kilometers from anyone out there. So if anything goes wrong, you're in trouble. <laughs> that, that sounds remote to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How many languages could you speak if you had to pass your way through a restaurant at least? Ooh. So ordering food would probably be... Yeah, just at least a basic level. Uh, f- five for sure. So I speak five languages fluently, um, but I'd say maybe six, possibly seven. Um, but it would be it be it wouldn't be pretty. <laughs> it would not be pretty. What are the five that you could say fluently? German was my first language. Um, then Afrikaans. Then English. Uh, Herero, which is a tribal language of Namibia. And then by virtue of speaking Afrikaans and German, I can speak Dutch um, just as a sort of byproduct. So, um, so yeah. And that probably helps when flying around the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd say actually the, the, the fact that I grew up around so many different accents helped me tremendously, I'd say, um, with the radio work all around the world. Um, and then also when you land, you've got all these different cultures to deal with. Growing up in Africa, you know, a, a lot of corruption and stuff. It was quite normal growing up, so I knew how to see through that right away and uh, deal with it all. So, um, so yeah, definitely helped a lot. What's your best quick tip for shooting better videos for listeners who are very amateur video uh, filmmakers with their GoPros and their Cessna 172? If you had one tip you would suggest, what is it? Ooh, that's hard. Just keep making things that you want to watch i guess and it's so cheesy but it's so true um i think so many people end up getting fixated on what is the viewer going to think what is you know what are the people that are going to see this thing um and instead just keep making stuff that you would want to watch like if you came home and you saw a notification of this video you know what do you want to see i think that's probably uh yeah, the most important thing. I don't even really deliver on that all the time, so um, I should probably listen to my own advice. So you talked about some amazing places to fly, you know, Africa, you mentioned uh, British Columbia or Alaska, but what's an underrated place to fly? What maybe doesn't get enough attention for being a great place to fly general aviation? I'd say I'd say Canada, honestly. Um, I know that f- for you guys, like it's it's just a short hop away um, and it, and in many ways, it seems like a, 
a bit of a, a mundane place because it's not all that different. But um, but there are some spectacular flying to do in in Canada. There's a lot of this similar infrastructure to the U.S. and um, and yeah, it it is just a magic place and I did a lot of my training out there and one of the big reasons was the affordability it is it is very affordable to to go and train and fly up there so um so yeah Canada for me is good definitely got a a, a spot in my heart it's a it's a pretty great place you mentioned earlier your massive bike trip uh 3,500 miles I think which you did I, I believe mostly by yourself uh, and you mentioned how that, that has some parallels with flying, but what, what did you learn from that about, uh, you know, yourself or perseverance through that experience that you think is valuable for pilots? Yeah. I mean, it, it was, I, I kind of liken it to, it, for me, a real adventure is never just roses and daisies and champagne on a porch somewhere. Like a real adventure is actually genuinely challenging experience. Um, you know, your first cross country, solo cross country, that's a real adventure. Like, because I don't think I know anyone that has ever had a, like a, just a stress-free first solo cross country. Um, so for me, that cycling trip was really like a billboard about, a, a billboard that I couldn't shake about what I'm made of. Like it, it really showed me, it, it was like a, a spreadsheet of what am I, what's, what do I handle really well and what do I handle really terribly? And so the, the personal growth there was tremendous. And, um, and so I think that's where the parallel comes in is that in flying, there is this sense of consequence to what we do. And that really extracts some real, really meaningful lessons. So when we, when we're out flying, and we make a mistake, uh, it hits home real quick, you know, especially if you've got kids and, and, and a wife at home and, and, you know, like you, you feel that in a way that you don't really feel other stuff. And, um, it, it teaches us to prioritize, but it also teaches us about our own, uh, decision-making and our own approach to things. And I think that, I think the world is better off if we have more self-aware people. And so a good adventure generates self-awareness. All right. So possibly related, but I know you're an experienced skydiver as well. Uh, you've made some amazing videos about that. As a skeptical pilot who's nervous about jumping out of perfectly good airplanes, give me your sales pitch. Why should I try skydiving? <laughs> if, if you're truly a pilot, then the thing you're after is the concept of soaring and being in the air. And, you know, I think every kid especially every kid who loves flying dreams of being a bird because it's that extension of yourself like you're not using machinery to fly like it's your body and uh, skydiving truly is that like you're flying your body you move an arm out you you're creating aerodynamic resistance and that's responding to how you're flying through the air so your body is your your flying surface and it is the most incredible thing we can do and um, I don't recommend base jumping and they often get thrown under the same banner skydiving is actually extremely safe um, it, it's extremely controlled the the gear is out of this world nowadays and um, and as a little bonus skydiving has expanded my task saturation point and my ability to deal with stress 
and uh, and overwhelming situations more than anything has. Um, and uh, and so I, th- I believe it's made me a better pilot. It's made me better at dealing with a lot of things in my life. And uh, it is an unreal experience. And I think every person should go do it. That's a pretty great sales pitch. Ned, <laughs> you've got me reconsidering. So, All right, JP, our last question is always the same on Fast Five, and that is this. You have one flight left, and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going? Oh, Lord. You should have given me a heads up so I could prep an answer. <laughs> um, Never. It has to be from the gut. What are you flying? See, this is like what if you had one airplane in your hangar, what would you pick? Like, It's just impossible. I think um, I think a Stearman, honestly, a Stearman or a Waco. Um, uh, they call them Wacos or Wacos. Um, They're Wacos and Wacos in the U.S., but Waco. I can't speak okay. for New Zealand. <laughs> Waco, um, something open cockpit biplane with a radio on the front. Um, you know, bit of oil in my face and just uh, soaring low above the uh, the red dunes of namibia um it, it would it would have to be between the red dunes of namibia or somewhere out in um in utah over canyonlands or something like that um at sunset that would that would have to be it jp schultz thanks for being with us on fast five thank you so much Thanks for listening to Sporty's Fast Five podcast brought to you by Sporty's Pilot Shop. For more episodes and links to additional information, visit sporties.com slash podcast. And if you have comments or guest ideas, email podcast at sporties.com. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Fast Five.